welcome to this special episode of Foundations for Discipleship with Pastor Tim Barr. I'm Alan Brace. On this episode, we'll be addressing a topic of today's culture literally displayed in the news headlines. And our discussion is built around a number of biblical passages, but at the core is Proverbs chapter 6. Our topic is sexual sin and why it is prominent in America today. And we'll end this episode with some discussion about cultural observation and, uh, and some steps that we can take to, uh, to get out of this if you are addicted uh, to sexual sin. We do warn you that while this discussion won't be graphic, it will be mature in nature. So we ask that you take care if you listen in the presence of children. So Pastor Tim, good morning. Yeah, good morning. You know, these are difficult conversations, but I think um, as we're talking about sanctification and, and our foundations discussion, I feel like there's a lot in this culture today, there's a lot of people who are really struggling with sexual sin. It's something that we rarely talk about in our churches, but we need to talk about more. And the really the goal of this podcast um, episode is to help us make sure that if someone is struggling, that they know there's help, that the Bible offers real help to this. We want to give you an idea of how to get help, but we want to say from the outset, this podcast alone is not what you need if you're struggling with sexual sin. You need pastors and biblical counselors in your life. Um, you, you need to not just hide this. We need to get the help. But I'm hoping this is an encouragement and gives you a kind of step forward. And for those who don't have it, I think it's really important to understand how we got to this place in American history um, and how this sin is defining our culture. And how it affects families just on an ongoing basis. And, and we need to figure out how or understand, as you said, understand where we came from. So let's define this a little bit. What, what do you, uh, what is sexual sin and, and specifically what is pornography? Okay. Cause I think we're going to spend a lot of time talking about pornography and, and pornography actually is an English word that um, kind of added together two words that have roots in the Greek language. The first is pornea, and that's actually a New Testament word, and it's a broad word for any kind of sexual deviance or sin. Um, if I were to think about where that might be illustrated and defined best in the New Testament, it's in Romans chapter 1. The end of Romans chapter 1 just talks about this, uh, the decline into sexual sin. I mean, we can have a conversation about when it happened. I think historically it happened before Noah and the flood, and that every generation every following generation has been struggling with every kind of sexual sin. But I do believe that we are seeing sexual sin excused in our culture today. We are seeing it encouraged in our culture today in ways it has not in the last number of generations. And as believers, we are in first Thessalonians, we are called to abstain from this. We are called to, to stay away from it. And, uh, and Paul calls us there in, in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians to uh, possess our own vessel in sanctification and honor. Uh, and, and that's what we're trying to address here as part of our, our sanctification and uh, in, in our foundations for discipleship. Yeah, so if you think of the word pornography, you have the word porneia, this is the first part. The second end of it is from the word graphe, or the word to write. Um, and it's just the original Greek word for writing there. And if you were to think about it this way, there's really never been a form of communication that mankind has not depraved into some sexual way. I mean, jokes can become that way. 
um, poems can be used that way. They can be written. They can be drawn. Now we have video. Now we have um, 3D and 4D and things social. coming out. Yeah, and all the social media that's out there uh, is has been turned this direction. Yeah, I think whatever form of communication people use mankind will attempt to use that form of communication to communicate in sexually sinful and deviant ways. I think we've proven that. And the problem is today is we have so many forms of communication that are so readily accessible to us. And that, that would be why sexual sin is so prominent here in our American culture is that everybody has access to just about anything um, without too much uh, limitation. Right. It's not that we are unique, but we do live in a difficult age. Um, and the thing about the Internet, it's provided huge opportunities for accessibility. Now, you work more in the radio world. I'm assuming the radio world used to be the most prolific form for communication in America. Am I right in that? Yes, that is correct. But at the time, at the time we had we that radio was, well, before even before television, radio was there. But there was always limitations on what you could do um, because the government at that time thought there should be we shouldn't be a purveyor of of some of the things that aren't are harmful to the family and to the culture. Yeah. And, and today it's the, the pendulum has almost swung completely the opposite way so that when you're talking about pornography, there are many secular therapists that will come to married couples or, or couples that are cohabiting together or whatever you want to call it today um, and encouraging them to use pornography as a aid or an embellishment or a help or a, a, a tool to improve their relationship. I mean, the pendulum has swung from viewing this as detrimental in the culture and for some to even viewing it as positive. But I do think if you were to go to the typical American today, they would put it somewhere in the neutral category. They would say it's just part of culture. Well, and, and sex outside of marriage is viewed as normal and, and acceptable. It's just, uh, in fact, your um, marriage is kind of an add-on, if you will, and and after children and oftentimes they they occur after children are part of the relationship we had a uh a friend who was a missionary in japan and he said that it was acceptable there as long as you didn't get caught um and so those it isn't just us it's, it's a worldwide thing and i think but today i think we are focusing more on the american culture yeah and you know it's interesting that pornography is I as I said I think people view it largely as a morally neutral conversation, um, but I would argue that in our modern psychological world we're beginning to see it viewed as maybe even helpful. Let me give you one example. Um, Jerry Hudson is quoted by Anthony Hoffman, and this is one of the things that they both agree on this statement. For many people, Internet pornography is more than simply a desire for sexual stimulation. It can become a coping mechanism for the pressures and stresses of life. And we are now seeing that big business, um, United States military, all kinds of large groups are really turning a blind eye to the negative effects of pornography because people view it as a means for taking a time out. 
um, and the stress of our culture is increasing and sadly people are turning on their computers they are if you would blanking out to all the stress of life and they're using this as a means and a mechanism for de-escalating stress is this and, sort of a substitute for drinking and drugs then in our society is that what is that what you uh, is that what he's saying here I'm not sure if everyone substitutes, but they certainly have added it in. Um, but yeah, I, I think we're seeing um, pornography being put into that kind of a thought press thought process. Maybe if you think of it this way, it's kind of viewed as the moral equivalent to marijuana. Okay, they view it as yeah, it can be somewhat harmful. Yes, it's not good, but they would say you know it just chills people out, and, and we need chill out time in our culture. And, and I think. So if we were to add that element in, it seems to me culturally that pornography has now moved a little bit even off-center of morally neutral within the cultural assumption to where it has now moved almost a little bit more to the cultural positive. Is this becoming, is the stigma of, uh, of this being sort of lost in the abnormal that we see? Uh, what is the new abnormal in our society? All right, so that's a generational question from my perspective. Um, if you were looking at Gen X and older, I think there's still a huge stigma and, and, a, and a hiding of it. If we were to look at millennials and below, I think it's a soon part of the culture. Um, it is, but even there, it's interesting. There is still a culture of hiding. As I've been reading some um, secular therapists and psychologists on this, co on this topic, um, the one thing that has struck me is how often they reference a culture of hiding and deceit as still being part of this, even for a younger generation that in many ways celebrates it and talks about it in ways their parents and grandparents never did. So how does our culture view pornography generally and, and how did we get here? I, I realize this is, that could be a really long answer and, I, I, but I think it's important that we understand what the history of this is. Where did this all get started? And, in, you know, and in our current culture, is this something that has been building for a while? So I've been kind of studying this, trying to understand it a little bit more myself. And um, a guy from, I believe, Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary did a demiss down there called, his name is Anthony Hoffman. And he's been especially helpful for me in painting a picture of the cultural drift that we now face. So I know we kind of talked about, normally you and I just kind of talk, but we thought it'd be really good to, for me to walk down through maybe the cliff notes of Anthony Hoffman's work on kind of how do we get to where we are. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's, I think we need to know what the history, uh, history of this is so that we can see it just isn't something that's popped up in the last five to ten years. Right. So the, the first act that actually directly opposed pornography was the Comstat Act of 1873. Now, it's interesting to go that far back. Um, it prohibited the transport of pornography through the mail. And this was eventually adjusted to include radio, which would have been the world you live in. Right, exactly. We had, we had a number of things, topics and words that we were not allowed to say while we were on the air. Right. Now, we're just giving you the modern history. Just, you know, there was laws against pornography in the pre-colonial America, okay? Um, but all the way up to the Comstat Act, there was basically a belief this was dangerous to the culture, dangerous to society, and there were various forms of legislation that came on. Then the big year is in 1957, 
you have the Supreme Court case, Roth versus the United States. The Supreme Court concluded that pornography was protected under the First Amendment as a freedom of speech. So if you start pre-revolutionary times in the colonies in America, it is not till 1957 that all of a sudden it was believed that the First Amendment, the right to free speech, protected pornography. And this is sort of the kickoff to the to the glossy magazines that were available at that time, correct? Yeah, absolutely. Now, it's interesting that they were still put away from where children were. They were put in paper bags, things like that. But this ruling allowed individual localities to continue a prohibition on porn, but they had they were now able to regulate it. Um, but overall, there was a belief that pornography is protected free speech after 1957. Then in 1970, there was the President's Commission on Obscenity and Pornography. Um, it becomes really significant for those who do the history of pornography. See, after an, an um, an unprecedentedly large collection of data, testimonies, and legal advice that took years. It was one of the largest data collections in, in American history at that time. The commission recommended to the U.S. Congress and to the president to repeal all prohibitions on pornography in the country because they believe, the commission concluded, that the right to free speech meant that pornography should be completely unregulated and made free among the culture. Now, but thankfully, good, it, yeah, go ahead. The good news there is that the Senate and, and President Nixon rejected that, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the, the U.S. Senate um, and Nixon both saw the political downside of that, and the, they were conservative at the time, and they really felt like that was attacking religious values. In many ways, the, what we call the religious right, the movement that becomes a religious right is significantly energized in its earliest development by um, Nixon's response to the President's Commission on Obscenity and Pornography. Because it was kind of a wake-up call to what was going on in our society. Um, I, I remember these days, it, it's kind of a, uh, where, where people began to actually talk about they needed to be involved in the culture. Yeah, I mean, before... Um, the early 1970s, pornography was done in really bad outdoor drive-in theaters, and the people who went there were viewed as harming their marriages and harming society. It was done in secret places in New York City and in dive bars, things like that. Um, but what this presidential commission did is it brought the discussion of pornography into the broader culture. And, and then people began to ask, wait a second, is there value to it? The other thing you got to remember is the influence of Sigmund Freud becomes really significant in the culture at this point as well, as he is beginning to argue that a good understanding of human sexuality um, is part of a healthy person. And of course the foundation of his entire counseling model is every man and every woman has a desire to have sexual relationship with part of their, with their parents. Um, and it's really out of that gross philosophical uh, underpinning or presupposition that you began to see a culture that was asking a lot of questions. And if you lived through the late 60s and early 70s, you remember the hippies were around. Um, it was a time of where we went from the 1950s to where you were in your car going to the, um, to the, 
root beer stand and um, and kissing a little bit to all of a sudden, by the time you were in the 60s and 70s, open immorality and public nudity were all of a sudden significant conversational pieces. Uh, not that I remember. Yeah, yeah, you're uh, you're were uh, weren't even a gleam in a gleam in daddy's eye at that point. So, yeah. um, but then we we move ahead to the end of the eight, 1980s. That whole process was going on through the 70s and 80s, uh, and and we look at the court decisions uh, on pornography and the freedom of speech and so forth. Yeah, and honestly, by the time you got done in the 1980s, it didn't matter what level, be it local or not, the, the overwhelming majority of all cases came back and viewed pornography cases as an issue of free speech. Prior to 1957, they were an issue of moral character within the nation. By the end of the 1980s, it was just, it, the assumption was this, everything dealt with free speech. Um, I think the big test case really comes in 1998, believe it or not. So you're, you're actually moved 10 years forward, um, and that is the Child Online Protection Act. The way I view COPA or the, or the Child Online Protection Act is it was fundamentally the nail that was driven into the conservative case against pornography. Now, it was never intended to be that. Uh, the act sought to protect children from exploitation in the porn industry. And especially on this new and burgeoning thing called the online pornography industry. So it was intended to be something that was good and, and protecting. But the problem is now you have the federal government trying to limit what the federal government has been calling free speech. And this is all of a sudden we were now asking how far down the depravity line does free speech protect? And if children are being harmed in this, that, that's the very bottom, right? That's getting as close to utter depravity as you can be. Right. So the, anyway, the act passed in 1998, but was never enforced because all the enforcement agencies knew that it would never pass legal muster uh, because they felt like it was a First Amendment issue. Um, but the final nail that was driven into the coffin of the legal defense comes in 2009, Another 10 years after that, you know, another 10 years after COPA was established, um, the Supreme Court refused to hear a case on COPA, eventually fully codifying a belief in American legal culture that pornography is an issue of the First Amendment. It, it doesn't seem like it's been that recent. Maybe 2009 isn't that recent, I guess, but it it's, doesn't seem like it's that recent that uh, that the final nail was really pulled in because it's been going on for a number of years prior to that. Yeah, and, and if you think about this, millennials, right? <laughs> when you think mm -hmm. about the very definition of who's a millennial and yeah. then the gener Gen Z that follows, these generations have grown up in a world from the time they were young where pornography was viewed in American culture as an issue of freedom of speech. Thus, it has been made available. And of course, if you add the internet and you layer that over top of a freedom of speech, now it is incessantly available everywhere that you go. So, I mean, I think it gives us a little sense of how that would work. But there's also a second line uh, that kind of is a, a parallel line to that, right? Uh, that that started back in '73 with the um, whole Roe versus Wade, um, you know, uh, statute that was struck down and which banned abortion. 
Yeah, so normally we talk about Roe v. Wade in terms of the sanctity of life and the attacking of, of the dignity of man and an attack on the, God's image in man. But there's actually a second side to the effect of Roe v. Wade. And, and I, if you just think about this, um, Roe v. Wade, 1973, right? Right. Um, so just in the conversation we're having, we are now beginning on the pornography side to view pornography as a freedom of speech issue. But the culture in which porn was going into was also being infected in other ways. And what Roe v. Wade did is it fundamentally concluded that a woman's sexuality is a private matter. Now, if you would have gone to the 1950s um, and you were going on out on a date, there was no assumption that what you did on that date was a private issue between you and your girlfriend. Right. Right. I mean, your mom and dad saw that just a lot different than that. Um, so did your pastor. So did your principal. Right. And it was thoroughly ingrained in your mind that that was a different, a different issue. I mean, there was, there was no amb ambiguity as to what it was all about. Right. Um, because remember, human sexuality is involved in reproduction. Reproduction is involved in the growing of community and society and family. I mean, there's this understanding that everything happened in more of a family culture. And in the 1960s, we began to argue that there's no, that there's no importance to this idea of honor and shame as connected to a culture. We became increasingly more individualistic. Um, so what Roe v. Wade did is that legally established that a woman's sexuality is a private matter, which functionally means that a man's sexuality is a private matter. Mm -hmm. Now that, that idea, by the time you get into the 1980s had already enculturated, you can find it in the music. Um, you know, I, I think even in, in people that we normally say are somewhat innocuous in terms of the 1980s music culture, I mean, not fundamentalist, but like broadly speaking, you know, take the Jackson five, right. And then go into Michael Jackson and then you see what he becomes, um, right. you know, this whole argument of the Michael Jackson thing, and then eventually his theme park. And, and then the question of how he handled children, what was the argument is he is a public star, but that is a private matter. Okay. I mean, that's just one example of thousands that pervade that time period of where the belief is this sexuality is simply a matter of privacy. Now that means it's a, in, in terms of legality, Roe v. Wade was based in the 14th amendment. And for those of us who are trying to remember what that is, 14th amendment protects um, people's privacy. So within the culture, the sexual revolution of the 1960s and seventies, along with the second Culture, sexual revolution of the early 2000s continues today based on one, on this core presupposition that human sexuality is a private issue. It is not an issue related to family and culture. And therefore you can't, you can't legislate against it. It, it, it any legal opposition becomes moot because it's based on the constitution. Right. And eventually whoever, whatever people's sexual choices and preferences may be, it's a private matter. It's protected in their mind by the 14th Amendment. You need to leave this alone. Um, and, and of course, as we're now um, on the backside, if you would, of the second great sexual revolution, some call it the Internet sexual revolution, um, whatever that is, whatever they're going to call it going forward, as we're kind of living on the backside, and I would say the very downside of that, 
um, we now find that there's really almost nothing in people's personal sexual choices um, that is taboo or off limits. Um, and, and the whole argument is this. That's a private thing. It doesn't matter to us. But so it does let, matter. Yeah, exactly. So let's let's talk about a little bit about, uh, you know, we've heard the history now, um, and we can kind of see where how we've gotten from uh, back in the 1800s till today. What does that do for our culture? What what sort of what sort of things do we observe in culture as being uh, affected directly by this this process that we're going through? Well, I'd start by saying the legal mode of opposing the production of pornography um, has really disappeared. And I say that because if you were to look from 1957 before, we rarely went after people who were the consumers of pornography, but rather all the legislation was against people who produced it or communicated it. Um, So that model has really fallen apart. Uh, in, in at least two ways. First, it is no longer um, legally possible to go after most of the purveyors of pornography. And second, I would observe um, that the core belief that pornography is bad has been undermined because now what we're fun- our culture fundamentally says is if you're involved in pornography, that's a personal issue. That's between you and your computer, you know, haha, right? right. Um, and, and then we sit around and, and say, um, it's also from the producer side, a First Amendment issue. We don't get involved in, in regulating content. So both sides of that, both sides affected by this, both the producer and the consumer are essentially legally protected. So it's, it's difficult, if, if impossible, to go after them. Right. So I, I've been trying to understand how to, un, to evaluate all the statistics you see on the Internet about how many Americans are involved in pornography and how many Christians are involved in pornography. To, to give you a sense, in a quick sampling, I saw everything from about 40% of Christians are involved in pornography on a weekly basis up to 85%. Oh, my. Well, I want to tell you, uh, you can't have that broad of uh, statistical analysis and and both be right. And and I think part of the problem we're facing is that people do hide this sin, um, and there is a certain culture of hiding that's inherent to the sin itself. But I, so I started trying to understand where do I find data that, that is like, I think justified, and this is kind of where I would be at. I think the vast majority of young Americans, now when I talk about young Americans, I'm talking about 18-year-old through about 25, are exposed to pornography by the time they're 18 years of age. Um, So I would say the current generation that is somewhere between 18 and 25, we believe that at least 75% of them have been exposed to pornography and the secular research people are telling us that of that, a significant group, but I can't give you any numerical way. That's not, I'm a pastor. I I don't know that I could in in any fair way evaluate that. Um, But a a significant group of that um, have not only been exposed, but are significantly involved or addicted to pornography. Um, So I think it's a pretty serious impact of all these legal and cultural adjustments in our society. 
and we we see that as sort of the watering down of the exclusivity of sex within marriage and and what's happening to our society pre-marriage uh and and that is a, a direct result of their i don't know dumbing down or the insensitivity toward that right yeah, so when I was growing up, I remember I would hear pastors periodically preach sermons. And by the way, pastors shouldn't be harping on this stuff all the time, right? But um, when I would hear good biblical sermons, and they would talk about, you need to abstain from premarital sex. Now, think about that statement. When I was growing up in the 1980s and early 90s, um, here it is. I am hearing people describe there is premarital sex, and then there is marital sexual relationships. And then we went to um, Genesis 1, and we talked about a man leaves his father and mother, cleaves to his wife, and they become one flesh and argued the one flesh relationship or the physical union between husband and wife, that is biblical and good and important in marriage. But, but to have it before marriage was wrong. Now, that's how we talked, can I say this, like 20, 25 years ago? Today that kind of language does not communicate well because the a huge portion of millennials and even more, I think of Z has no assumption that human sexuality is part of marriage because they're not intending to be involved in marriage. Yeah. Marriage, marriage is considered to be sort of an unnecessary commitment that you do somewhere down the road. Right. Yeah. And it's certainly not something that is directly connected to opening the door to the legitimacy of sexual relationships. Um, so they, they view marriage as something you do when you have a child or a couple children in order to help those children know there's going to be stability in the parental relationship. They're not viewing marriage as being the covenant that a man and a woman enter into and that human sexuality is the one flesh um, element of that covenant. Um, so in, in a sense, if you would, this massive sexual cultural change has harmed not only the relationship between men and women, um, and I would argue now it's significantly harming relationships between men and men and women and women, um, but it has also harmed children. Um, it has left children in homes that are increasingly unstable, and this is the culture in which we now live. So last Sunday, we in your sermon, you mentioned um, Proverbs 6. You preached from Proverbs 6, uh, verses 20 through uh, 29, um, and the warnings that are in there, but how little hope there that is provided by Solomon in this passage as he talks about family obligations and, and some of the immediate consequences that are that happen, um, you know, verse 24 to, uh, keep you from the flattering tongue and do not lust after her beauty and so forth. And then there are permanent consequences, uh, as, as you went on through your sermon, um, is there hope and found at all in Proverbs six? No, none. Um, and, and there's a reason for that. And that is basically says, Hey, if someone steals, Yes, you're going to get the punishment. You might even lose your own house, but everybody's going to understand. But if you steal a man's wife, that, that man never is going to understand that. He's never going to be okay with that. Um, and I, I think there is a sense in where Proverbs 6, while it offers no hope, it does open an issue of significant importance, and that is for those who have been harmed by sexual sin, 
those who have spouses that got involved in pornography or those who have parents that have been involved in sexual sin or have harmed them or other or been harmed in other ways. I mean, we live in a culture today where and I don't know if this statistic was true, but I believe all statistics are made up on the spot, probably, you know, but this one here I heard the other day was that some that 75 percent of women who spend four years in a secular college um, will be sexually um, assaulted in some way. Um, and I, I, now I don't know if that's actually true. I, I've been trying to find some evidence. And I and so what I did is I said, I heard a stat. I don't know if it's true. I threw it along because it sounds interesting. Um, what it does do is at least anecdotally open up the conversation to say, there's a lot of people who are family members or community or in the Christian family, the church of people who have been harmed by this sin. And it's, it, it's very, very life-changing for everyone. Um, I remember, I, mean, I don't know if you ever heard the quote that um, pornography is um, the only sexual sin that has um, no one being harmed by it. Yeah. That, that was their common excuse. That was their, their common um, reasoning for doing it. Yeah, and there is no such thing as a victimless sin, but especially there is no such thing as a victimless sexual sin. Um, and by the way, the first victim, more than anyone else, we need to remember is Jesus Christ. Exactly. I mean, we yeah. are harming him, but we're harming the person who gets involved in it is harming himself or herself. They're harming their family. They are harming their Christian community. Um, these sins are really, really significant, but there is biblical hope and there is a chance of restoration. So we got to talk about that. Well, we have, uh, we have eight biblical and some practical steps that uh, can be changes for the addicted to this, uh, the people who are addicted to uh, sexual sin. Uh, it's the acrostic act right a-c-t-r-i-g-h-t and uh let's let's go through those uh, the first one is to admit that you've sinned uh, or are sinning or will likely sin again uh and where do we find that in in scripture and and how does that apply to this all right it takes a huge amount of humility to listen to this but if you are involved in sexual sin i gotta say the first thing you gotta admit is that you've done it that you're doing it and you'll likely do it again why First Corinthians 10, 12, therefore, let him who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. Be careful uh, not to uh, point at others because it could, it, it could happen to you. And by the way, it is interesting in Hebrews 12, when it talks about Jesus, who we look to, um, it says, look into Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. And I say one of the things that you're going to find is if you are going through sexual sin, one of the reasons we struggle to admit it is shame is one of the most powerful drivers in the life of people. But we need to remember that our Savior endured the shame of all of our sin. He not only removed the legal consequence of our sin, but he has endured the shame. And, and maybe if you're listening to this and you're struggling with sin, this sexual sin, I want to encourage you, you got to admit that you sin. And, and the hardest part is you're going to have to go through an awful lot of shame. Um, and shame can prevent us from change. Shame can bring us into greater levels of depravity, but recognizing that Christ endured our shame and admitting it to God and to someone else 
Um, remember the greatest command, love the Lord your God with all our heart, soul, and might. Second, love your neighbors yourself. I want to tell you, if you're going to get over shame, you have to confess both directions. You confess to God, you confess to others. But shame, but Jesus endured the shame. There is hope even for the shame that you're feeling. Admit that you've sinned. And you've mentioned the second point in the acrostic, um, and that is confess your weakness and your helplessness. Helplessness. We can't do this by ourselves. It, it, it's about confession. Yeah, James 5.16, confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. I can tell you, we need to confess this sin to one another. But it is interesting, as I understand how pornography begins to shape a person, if someone is involved in porn, if they're involved in adultery, whatever the sexual sin may be, there is a tendency to hide that sin. And what people don't realize is that the most lasting effect of sexual sin is often in the area of hiding. Right. People begin to lie to themselves. They begin to hide their sin, and they feel like there's no way they can ever tell anybody. And yet, what does Paul say in Ephesians 4.25? Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor for we are members of one another, right? And so I'm going to say, if you are involved in sexual sin and we just told you you have to admit the sin and confess your sin, I can imagine there's an intense pressure on you right now in your conscience because what you're thinking is this, I hide this. This is what I do. But what you're going to find is even as you confess that sin, you are going to find that you have created all kinds of patterns of deceit and you may even find that you are lying to yourself and believing your own lies. My dad always said the most dangerous man in all the world is the man who believes his own lies. Um, and pornography and, and often, can lead to that. And oftentimes you have to um, convince yourself, you, you sort of, um, what's the word? Uh, you convince yourself that it's okay. And so it's, you're lying to yourself. People make excuses and they make explanations. Right. I'm okay. It really didn't matter. That's the excuse. The explanation is it was necessary for this reason. I was totally stressed out. I had to decompress, right? That's an right. explanation. An excuse is, well, man, I didn't mean to do it. And I'll just pray and ask God for forgiveness. We got to stop that kind of thinking. Confess your weakness and your helplessness. That's the thing. Confess that you can't fix this yourself. So we have, we have uh, stated in the first two letters of the acrostic, uh, A is admit that you've sinned, C is you confess your weakness and helplessness. So now we look to sort of a, uh, a practical thing, a, an action item on your part, and that is to turn away from triggers. That is, uh, replace it with the armor of God. In other words, replace this addiction that you have with the armor of God. Um, you won't be able to res resist the act of the will um, unless you uh, try to avoid it. You have to work at it. Yeah, so most people think pornography is a private issue that they are dealing with. But I remind you what, if, what Paul said in Ephesians 6, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this age against spiritual host of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you might be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. 
We need to understand we need God to protect us. And we also need to keep in mind that it is the will of God, as, as Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and uh, verse 3, for the will of God is our sanctification, that we should abstain from sexual immorality, uh, and that each of us needs to know how to possess our own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who don't know God. So if, if, particularly if you're a child of God, it's important to your sanctification that we become part of this, that, that, that we work at this, that we take up the armor of God and abstain from this immorality. Yes, let's talk about this word trigger. This is not a biblical word. This comes out of the psych psychological world, but it's a really good word. What a trigger is, there's certain um, things that we see. There's certain places that we go. There's certain events that happen that can cause us to fall back into bad patterns of sin. And so I like to call them triggers. I think it's something we're used to. And what I would say is this, if you have ever, if you have been involved in sexual sin, you have also tried to stop. Mm -hmm. And what you found was this, every time you think you've beat it, you hit a trigger and you find yourself falling back in. Sometimes you even know it and you feel completely helpless. Like I'm never going to be able to get back out of it. And I want to say, that you will never overcome the triggers of the flesh without the armor of God. Okay. When you hit those situations, when you hit that time at night, when you hit, when you're all alone and no one's in the house and the computer is there, when you are driving by um, someone's house that you have had an immoral relationship in the past, when you get a call from an old girlfriend, whatever it may be without the armor of God, your flesh is too weak. You've already admitted that your weakness and your help, you confessed your weakness and helplessness. Now what you got to do is you got to turn away from the trigger. You got to say this, God, I'm trusting in the, um, in the breastplate of righteousness, right? All right. Not the sword of truth, the right. helmet of salvation, right? This is what I'm trusting in. I'm not trusting in my strength or my character. I'm trusting in what God is doing in my life. And so the next step is to turn away from those triggers, but we have to have some place to go when we, when we turn, uh, turn away from those triggers. And so the next one, so we've covered ACT, A-C-T, um, and if we act right, the first letter there is R, and so we turn away from these triggers, we run to God. And as you mentioned once before, the Holy Spirit needs to be our primary accountability partner. Yeah, so a lot of people say, who is your accountability partner? By the way, I think it is important to have accountability and partners. But in Ephesians 4.30, Paul writes, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed to the day of redemption. When you got involved in sexual sin, you not your first person you sinned against is God. Okay? You sinned against yourself. You sinned against your spouse or your future spouse. You sinned against the people in your family, right? But I got to tell you, the primary offense is against God. Now, why do I say that? Remember when David sinned, you get to Psalm 51, David in his confession of his sin of adultery with Bathsheba, um, what does he say? Again, he says to God against you and, and you, you only have I done this sin, right? 
So let's park there for just another second. So are you saying that we really, sh you know, obviously the Holy Spirit should be our, our first and foremost accountability partner, but are you saying that we shouldn't have human accountability partners? Oh, absolutely not. I, I think human accountability is good, but here's my one problem. I have listened to various settings where I've been in local churches with men, where there's been groups that have been talking about this. And when I often hear people make a statement, something like this, it feels like God is absent, so you need a human accountability partner because you're going to be more scared of telling a man that you sin than God. I can tell you, if that is your thinking, you have yet to run to God, okay? You ought to be more scared that God knows than you are that your buddy at church knows. It's your perspective of who God is that, at that point that you need to be fearful of, of, uh, of him, of God. Yeah. So my dad was a machinist and he, he used to wear an apron um, because when they would work on on big equipment and stuff like that, it would keep all the junk off and they would put pockets on them. And, and so my dad always said this. He said, if God if you knew that God was sitting in that pocket and saw everything that you saw and heard everything you did, he would tell us that when we were kids all the time. He said you would live very differently if you had a constant awareness of God's presence in our life. Now, let me ask you, is the Holy Spirit with us? Yes. Yeah. He is our accountability. God does see. He does hear. So when we sin, we need to run to God, not run away. We need to be constantly aware of his presence. He is our primary accountability partner. Human ones are important, but let's keep the focus where scripture does. And if you doubt that, uh, if you don't really understand that, look at Ephesians 5, 17 through 19. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And that is to not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with the spirit. And then it goes on to say, you know, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. So there is a level of, of human accountability uh, said there, but we really need to understand what the will of the Lord is first. Yeah, right. So um, yielding yourself to the Holy Spirit. Um, which is, I think, the idea of being filled by the Spirit. That right. is primary. Secondary is speaking to one another. This is one of the great passages of the local church, one of the one another passages. Um, and so I'm a big ordinary means of grace guy. I think that you actually get grace from the body life of the local church by just doing the ordinary things, mm -hmm. not saving grace, but grace that helps us be sanctified. Okay. Um, in that way, I want to tell you, being involved in a local church, that is part of overcoming debilitating sin, including sexual sin. And sometimes it's not just showing up at church. Sometimes you need someone who specifically knows your challenge, but is there to be that secondary encouragement, that one that says, hey, how'd you do this week? And by the way, how cool is that if you had a week where you didn't sin and someone says, amen, I've been praying for you all week long, every yeah. single day that you wouldn't fall into this, right? That edification, the building up, we need to have that. So we've, we are now have run to God. We've, we've talked about uh, our accountability to him and to others. Um, another practical thing is that we need to identify thought patterns and replace them. Are, are there any real practical methods to doing that? Uh, maybe Psalm 119.11, hide uh, God's word in our hearts so that we, can't, we won't sin against him, that sort of thing? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, but I would just say, I don't know if it's practical or not, but it's practical in my world. 
Mm-hmm. I have to always remember when I'm struggling with sin from first Corinthians 10, the weapons of our warf- warfare are not carnal. They're not fleshly. We're not going to find anything in behavior or behavioralism that is going to help us get through this challenge, but rather, um, but we're mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. How do we do that? By bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. So our flesh and our, we're not going to win the war in our own strength, but that is not an excuse. We have to do this, bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. By the way, we're going to win this war in our minds. Right. That's where it starts. Yep. And it's every thought will be obedient to my Savior. I'm going to obey the word of God. I'm going to obey the pattern of my Savior. And then once again, in Ephesians, we are, uh, if you do that, if you change your thought pattern to be obedient, you determine you're going to be obedient to Christ. Uh, Paul says there that, uh, that you put off putting concerning your former conduct. So there's the action step is that you have to put that off. It is uh, the old man uh, and put, put off the old man with the deceitful lust, as he says in chapter four of Ephesians. Yeah. But then he goes on to say, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind right? Mm -hmm. See, it's not just putting off sin. I think anyone that's ever dealt with sexual sin, if you're listening to this and you've done it, you've tried stopping a hundred times, you need to replace that with something else. Now, what do you do? You replace it by having the spirit of your mind. This is not the Holy Spirit in your mind. This is what you are thinking about in your mind. So at the times that you would naturally be involved in that sin, you need to replace it with something good. By the way, if you're married, One of the things you can do is this. If you notice that you've been struggling with sin at a certain time because you went down in the basement at night when your wife isn't around, change your patterns to where every night you spend the night with your wife, just being around her. But you're like, what should we do? Read the Bible. Yes, that's great. Read the Bible. But most of us are probably not going to read the Bible six hours every night for our free time. But maybe we could start doing is reading a good book, or maybe you and your wife get together and you binge watch something that's good, like morally good. Um, can, can we do an advertisement? How about the great British baking show? You know, you, you get into something <laughs> like that, right? Um, you, know, you, you, you do something together, you identify thought plans, you replace them. By the way, if you're not married, you can do this in so many great ways by building great relationships and friendships with godly people, but you got to know where you're failing you got to put off the failure and you got to replace it, put on the good. And then we move on to giving control of our bodies to Christ. So that's the G, uh, give control of your body to Christ. Yeah. So every sin that you sin, you use your body to accomplish. That was revelatory to me when someone pointed that out. You know, if you're struggling with sexual sin, you're using your eyes, you're using your body, right? You're using your ears, you're using your hands, you're using your feet. You just look at your body. You use your body to sin. That's the way it works. <laughs> um, so listen to what Paul says to us in Romans 6.13. And do not present your members. That means the parts of your body, your hands, your eyes, your feet, whatever, as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. But present, yield, give them, use them yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. By the way, you're either going to use your body to sin or you're going to use your body to do good. 
So what we need to say to this, we need to say to God, God, I'm not the one in control of how my body is used anymore. You're in control. You get to control what my eyes see. You get to control where, where I go and what I do. Paul is pretty clear about it. He says later in verse 19 that he speaks in human terms because of the weakness of our flesh. Uh, for in verse 19, the rest of the verse, for just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, now, here's the order, here's the, the dictate, uh, now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. That is, uh, ultimately, that's what we are called to do is to give this up and become slaves of righteousness. By the way, I love that concept of slaves. My hands are slaves to God and to righteousness. Mm-hmm. My eyes, I don't own them. God owns them. Th- they're his slave. They will only be used for righteousness. My mouth, my mouth is a slave to righteousness. I don't own it. It doesn't own itself. God owns it. And by the way, if we started thinking like that, that actually helps us to understand that we need to give control of our body to Christ. Right. We, we can't do it ourselves because, as we've talked about in uh, our discipleship class, um, we are inherently uh, sinful. And if we try to do it on our own without God's help, we don't have a chance, but we need to uh, commit to giving our control of our body to Christ and allow him to, to work through us as well. Okay, for those of you who are involved in sexual sin and you're listening into this, let me just say most of you at some point or another had in your mind, I will not do this, but you felt this incredible compulsion and that compulsion overrode what your conscience was telling you. In that moment, what you decided is that your body was a slave to sin. And what you got to remember is this body is a slave to God. By the way, I've met men that when they felt that, they walked out of the house, got put on their shorts, and went for a run. And they said, this body of mine is not owned by sin. I'm going to yield this body to Christ. Um, By the way, whatever it takes, you remind yourself that your body is Christ. Give control. So who's going to control? Sin or God? Right there is where the battle lines are in these sexual sins. And then we need to honestly identify situations of limited self-control. Where does, where, where do we stumble? And we need to identify those and be honest about it. Yeah. Um, in, in Proverbs 14, um, verse 12, it's interesting. It's re- that exact same verse is, re- uh, that's Proverbs repeated again in chapter 16 and verse 25. If, if, Pro- if Solomon included it twice, it's doubly important for us to notice. Mm-hmm. There is a way that seems right to a man but its end is the way of death. I want to tell you, when you are struggling with sexual sin, it makes total sense why you're doing it when you're doing it. But the end is death. It is separation. Separation from God relationally for a believer. It also includes separation from family and friends. Um, By the way, there's nothing but death on the other side of sexual sin. So I would just say we want to be really, really careful that we understand it seems right in the moment, but it's not. So we've got to honestly identify um, situations of limited self-control. We need to know when is it that that sin just makes sense to us? When is it that it 
I think I'm quoting from the 1960s, a song when it seems so right. Okay. Right. When is it that that sin seems so right? Um, we need to know when those are. And that kind of goes back to the situation of what we said before, which was we need to identify the thought patterns and so forth. We also need to identify these situations and, and be honest about it. Hey, you know, if I go, go here, or I go there, or I'm, I'm doing some things that uh, by myself that, you know, I need to identify those and, and be honest about it. Well, if you have a pattern of sexual sin, or if you right now have someone in your life that you're, that you know of that is struggling with sexual sin, let me tell you, I can guarantee there is also a pattern of deceit and lying, right? There is a pattern of hiding and that pattern of sexual sin is easier to overcome than the pattern of deceit and lying. And yet Ephesians 4.25, therefore putting away lying, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor for we're members of one another. But listen to the next verse. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Now notice the next. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands. Verse 29, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. And then it is all building to verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. I guess say, we have to understand that what pornography and sexual sin do is they snowball in a bad direction a, a, a series of sins that ultimately lead to the grieving of the Holy Spirit in our life. And I get, you will find one of the, sh the most difficult things to do is to be honest about not only your sin, because when you become create a pattern of, of dishonesty about your sexual sin, you're probably going to also create patterns of dishonesty about other areas in your life too. Um, huge pattern um, that can develop out of this. So then finally, we, uh, because of the, the, the conditions that, uh, that sexual sin cause amongst our friends and our family and so forth, uh, that we need to trust God to restore relationship in his way, that is, in his timing and, and to the degree that he, he uh, restores those relationships. Yeah, let me just start with Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart. It doesn't matter if you are harmed by this sin or you are a perpetrator of this sin um, or if you want to just kind of listen to this podcast to learn more about it. I want to tell you, you can trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding, but rather in all your ways, acknowledge him and he'll direct your paths. Uh, it all gets started with saying, God, I'm just going to trust in you to get me from where I am. And uh, and don't and it says lean not on your own own understanding. Also, there's a, there's a lot of worldly um, things out there that it would try to convince you otherwise. Uh, don't lean on that either. Do not lean on the things of the world. Lean on uh, on the word of God and uh, and let Him direct the path. Yeah, I know everybody wants the relationships to be stored instantly. But the fact of the matter is, if you have been involved in sexual sin, you have probably harmed people around you in ways that they're not going to be able to forgive you quickly or easily. Now, can I speak to those of you who are harmed? Ephesians 4.32, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted. I know it's going to be really hard to hear. Forgiving one another, even as God and Christ forgave you. 
Now, I'm not encouraging you to go back under sexual sin. I'm not encouraging you to put yourself in harm's way. But what I am saying is this, if someone around you has honestly repented and turned from that sin, if Christ can forgive them, so can you, and you need to. And kind of bringing this back to our sanctification part of our, our study and discipleship, we, we have said a couple of times that, uh, that God is dealing with us on certain things and, and, and making us more holy, making the holiness that's inside become part of our actions on the outside. And part of that is cutting some people some slack. If you know that those people uh, are being dealt with, that they've committed to uh, walking away from this sin, we need to also be patient with them and let God do their work in them, but also be an encouragement to them. Right. Hey, I know this has been a really long podcast. Um, and it, we said this is a special one. We're just trying to hit what's a really important issue. But can I encourage you as we're finishing up, I want you to know that if you are struggling in one of these ways, you're not alone. Um, you need to get someone from our church to come and help. If you're in another church, make sure you go to your pastor, get the help that you need. Don't try fighting this one alone. By the way, don't minimize the sin. Don't, don't look at the whole thing and pick just one of them to deal with. Be willing to admit the whole thing. Um, and if I have it right, we're going to try to get um, this act right into the um, somehow connected to the podcast. Am I right in that? Yes. Uh, we're going to uh, put this into the uh, podcast notes that you'll be able to pull up as I, uh, I believe we uh, are going to do that. And there's scripture in there that you can go back and review and, 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 encourage as we as you do that let us encourage you to break the habits and and go back and review this as you need to um because the, this addiction is uh is a tough one to break on your own and we encourage you to find counsel uh as and and make sure that god remains your your primary accountability partner through all of this good um pastor tim could you do us a favor as we close could you could you pray for those people who are struggling with us and uh, and we'll close our podcast dear heavenly father we come before you and my heart is just heavy as i think about so many people that are struggling with this sin those who are addicted and bound to it and those who have been harmed by people who have sinned against them but father we know that christ came and lived a perfect life and died on a cross, having borne all the shame. And Father, I know it'd be so easy for someone to hear this podcast to be convicted in their conscience and not change, but I would ask that they would be willing to take that next step in their walk with you. And may you use this podcast in a way to be an encouragement. Anyone who's listening right now, Father, I'd ask that you would just help them to know that there is hope and there is help, and it is found in Christ alone. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Mm-hmm.